Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, still lots of chatter about the Prime Minister doing a vaccination deal with China only to have the rug pulled out from underneath him. We talk about the business of vaccines and are we doing enough to lure those manufacturers? Many are calling for long-term cares to be taken out of private hands and put into government hands. Is that the answer? And you want to attend a concert? Beauty. All you got to do is slip into this bubble. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast from a bubble. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I want to introduce you to my new closest friend. No masking, no social distancing, just fun. Meet Frosty the Snowman. (laughs) Frosty, say hi to the nice folks. Frosty, say something. He's quite shy, that little one. Oh, it's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I'm sorry, I I no longer have control. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air as we are uh, halfway through week number 46. Feel free to jump into the snow and into the fun. Is there anybody having any more fun than my dog right about now? Uh, feel free. We'd love to hear from you. The phone lines are always open. Oh, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, let's get moving with this story because it, it uh, you know, we've been talking about it off and on uh, for a while, but it seems to have come to a head uh, at this point uh, in regard to where we are with vaccinations, uh, when we got in line to get, uh, to buy doses from Pfizer and, and Moderna and the rest of them. And were we late to that lineup simply because we were spending too much time working on a deal, uh, the Cancino deal, uh, trying to get a vaccine out of China? Uh, lots have reported on this. Let's bring in Stephen Chase, Ottawa Bureau reporter for the Globe and Mail, and is with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Yes, it's glad to be here. Give us a little bit of an update, a capsulated version of this story and uh, in regard to the early stages of this pandemic and what the prime minister's office uh, priorities were at that time. Yeah, so the, what we're talking about is uh, a vaccine candidate called Can, uh, CanSino, the CanSino vaccine. This is a Chinese company. Uh, there was a project that uh, three months into the pandemic, the government jumped into 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 a into a partnership with the Chinese government and the Chinese military uh to try to build a vaccine uh the company was called CanSino so uh, it's announced in early May uh, within a couple of weeks Trudeau the prime minister gets up and tells people that uh, we've approved clinical trials for this for this vaccine in Halifax but then basically things never get out of the gate and we don't hear about the the public doesn't hear anything more about this until August uh, that when we learn that 
this partnership has basically fallen apart. But we got more details uh, yesterday. Yeah, there was requested documents released by the government to uh, a conservative MP who had asked questions on them, Michelle Rumpel-Garner, and it was just giving us more insight into what happened with this uh, with this partnership. Now, of course, we're no longer depending on CanSino, and we've gone and signed contracts with Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and so on. But we finally learned uh, what happened here. So basically, three days after Trudeau tells Canadians, hey, we've got this partnership, clinical trials are beginning on this vaccine candidate, three days later, the government learns Chinese government's not letting the vaccine doses leave uh, Beijing. They're stuck in the airport, and that's clearly a decision by the Chinese government to block it. And then, of course, as time goes by, the months go by, and we learned this again from the documents late yesterday, the government tells, uh, revealed that basically they said, well, you know, we thought this was one of the most promising candidates early on, but then other candidates, uh, you know, we're talking about Pfizer, Moderna, started to look more promising, and we basically gave up on CanSino. So it, we didn't learn until, the, the public didn't learn until August that this had, been, uh, this had fallen apart, but yesterday we got a better sense of what the thinking was internally. So this, uh, this, this particular vaccine is still being developed in places like, uh, and tested in places like Russia and Saudi Arabia. We don't hear much more about it these days, but it's kind of a, basically a, a particular chapter in the in the pandemic story about a failed partnership, and most people think that China, uh, without any evidence, most people believe that somehow the, the strained relations between Canada and China led to the, uh, the the vaccine doses never being allowed to leave. Well, what would be the under what would be the reason for all of a sudden making that decision, considering they let other countries uh, have the same sort of opportunity? Any idea why they did cut off that shipment? The only thing that people are pointing to is we have the worst relationship with China since we've had since uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre in in the, the eighty nine. Relations have dropped, um, you know, off a cliff since uh, we arrested uh, the Huawei executive in uh, Vancouver in uh, twenty eighteen, and then China in turn went and locked up two Canadians uh, in what Mr. Trudeau has called retaliation. So that has basically soured relations. Now, in in May, when last year, when this was all, this partnership was taking shape, Miss um, Meng, who's the Huawei executive, actually suffered a, a real setback in her efforts to sort of uh, leave Canada. She tried in, in May last year, the very same month Canada was was launching this partnership with China. She tried to tell the to appeal to the uh, the BC Supreme Court and say, look, the, this this whole extradition. Uh, a bid is 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 ridiculous. It doesn't it shouldn't even apply to me. And she her bid uh, failed right around the same time that this vaccine partnership was supposed to be taking off. So it's it's within a couple weeks. Uh, so you know that's what people are pointing to is the likely reason for this. But we don't have any evidence because the Chinese government uh, has not given us any any explanation for what happened. Uh, again, when asked when I asked you why this happened, obviously you point to the sour relationship between China and Canada. So why would the prime minister want to rely on a vaccine from China? Yeah, and I guess that's the question: is was he relying on it, or was it just one? Of, we were we were betting on a whole bunch of horses, and this is one of the first horses out the gate. It, there, it, one minister who's now um, left the cabinet, Navdeep Bains, the industry minister, now called the innovation minister, he, he was responsible for this project. The person who was responsible for buying vaccines is a different minister, public, the public procurement minister, Ms. Anand. So the government's argument is, no, we weren't putting all our eggs in one basket. He was working on this project, but, but she was 
beginning negotiations. The only question, of course, is why do we only begin negotiations in July uh, when other countries such as the UK had already been talking for weeks and weeks? So, you know, there, the, the, the question of whether we were laggards in the race to secure vaccines uh, is still an open question. And uh, yes, this can sign failure is, is part of that story, but not the whole story. Uh, and as well, uh, that, and that's the question here is the timeline. How much time was wasted trying to, to get deals like this together as opposed to standing in line like uh, everyone else was to buy the, the vaccines from Pfizer uh, and Moderna? Uh, that being said, um, the, the buying, the, the purchasing of these vaccines didn't happen until August. Could we have started that process earlier? Well, if you look at the timeline of the UK, for instance, they were in discussions with vaccine, uh, with potential vaccine suppliers in June. So yes, we could have. Uh, we don't understand why. We still haven't gotten a sufficient explanation as to why we weren't in negotiations until mid-July or early July. So yeah, there's a, there's a few weeks there. On the other hand, the government says, look, we were the fourth company to sign uh, with Pfizer and BioNTech, the first fourth country. And we were the first to sign with Moderna. Again, I guess in the end, it doesn't really matter. We're not getting our vaccines in a, in a timely manner right now. And, uh, and that's why people are concerned right now. And that's why we're asking a lot of questions about what happened. Um, so around the time that they were trying to investigate this uh, CanSino deal and, and doing their work there, why were they not supportive of other Canadian companies, uh, Providence uh, Therapeutics, we just had on the other day, uh, yesterday, though, uh, they saying that, you know, we approached the government in March in order to get approval and get stages uh, for this first stage of, of testing and, and get support. So if the government was lining up to buy vaccines from Pfizer and and yet doing a can sign no deal why not be by looking for a, a looking for a canadian solution and, and why are we hearing the stories that we're hearing now from uh, providence therapeutics uh, that's a good question i don't know we know that they did sign with the government has signed agreements with other companies like medicago uh, which is also mm-hmm. working on a vaccine um i don't know um one of the things about the federal health department is it's not normally a, a delivery, a service delivery department like the provinces are. It's not used to, you know, having to um, to run programs and deliver programs, except to uh, obviously to indigenous peoples. But they don't have a, a, a great history of uh, a big, uh, a, you know, a work history or a record of having to do major service delivery, major delivery of products and and services to Canadians, right? Not like the provinces do. So who knows? We're this is a story that's by no means answered yet. Um, you, you talked about how the government was saying at the beginning of all this, you know, you know, we shot in all directions, and the Cansino deal was just one of those. Um, was that done to appease China, hoping that, oh, if we do business with them, it might help us with those sour negotiations? Uh, why would the prime minister's office even look in this direction? What is the love affair with China? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't. There, it's. I think the Canadian government has been looking for areas to cooperate with China, even despite the um, the terrible relations, you know, like the on the environment and so on. So, yeah, I'm sure there was was that. The other thing is, is CanSino, if, if that company, the Chinese company, if you if you look at the name, it, it's actually founded by a guy who worked in Canada for for decades. Yep. Uh, and it has a history of working with Canada on the Ebola vaccine as well. So there's sort of a history there. 
between the National Research Council and this company, and I guess that might explain why it might have come together in the first place. Uh, that, that there is a history. I'm not sure that it was entirely a sort of a, a, a sort of diplomatic exercise, but I think that um, you know they were throwing money at a lot of uh, bets, and uh, this one clearly didn't work. We don't have a lot of news yet on the efficacy of the CanSino vaccine, so a lot of people have been questioning whether or not, or asking maybe it was a good thing that we, we took a pass on this. We're, they still haven't uh, announced the results of their clinical trials, which are being conducted in places like Russia and, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, we've noticed that, and, and, and many have criticized uh, this government for not uh, holding China's uh, feet to the fire more, not being more aggressive with them. Not sure if that's the an- not sure if that's the answer or not. But we've re- uh, recently seen a, a, certainly a different tone in the prime minister when referring to China. He's he's taking a, a much tougher stance in the last couple of months on uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party. It, it, is the timing wise? Would it suggest that? This was probably the reason, you know, come late summer, it was like, wow, you know, they've done it to us again, per se. Uh, Do you think that's one of the reasons his tone has changed? I think that one of the major reasons his tone has changed is because there's more and more evidence of the atrocities that the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party is is visiting on people like the Muslim Uyghurs, the you know the million people detained in in concentration camps in China, the sterilization programs, and so on. There's a lot of information coming out about the conduct of the Chinese Communist Party, and that is something the government can't ignore. But what one thing that's really important is Trudeau's unwillingness to trade um, the Huawei executive Meng for the two Michaels. Uh, you may recall back in the spring um, the sort of Chrétien era liberals. Um, people who worked in in, in the in the Chrétien era, whether it's John Manley, uh, former deputy prime minister, or Eddie Goldenberg, former um, top aide to Jean Chrétien, or even Jean Chrétien himself, started sort of trying to publicly trying to pressure the Trudeau government, who of course are generations younger than them, to to make a deal, to cut a deal, and Trudeau. Yeah. Straight, interestingly enough, said no, absolutely no way. I'm not going to do that because it's going to set a precedent. I have noticed that there was that that represented a real pivot and a shift in the way he handled things because basically he's saying to the Chinese that we're not going to give in to your to your um, to your pressure campaign, and I think that helped um, pave the ground and also in. in in tandem with what we're learning more and more about the treatment of the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang province, what you know, many people are calling a genocide. I think that, that, that Trudeau's refusal to trade Hmong for the Michaels was the beginning of a change. Interesting point. Uh, will we see, and we've sort of uh, strayed here a bit, but it's a fascinating topic, will we see allies regroup and, and form a united front, for lack of a better phrase, on this, especially now that we've seen the change in the administration uh, in the U.S.? You're talking about a united front against China. Is that what you're saying? No, I, I was actually saying a united front against, yeah, against uh, the allies uh, against China, as opposed to the united front China has over here. But uh, yeah, the allies coming together and taking yeah. a united stand on this. Yeah, I think I think to a certain extent. I mean, we have seen really um, strong signals from Anthony Blinken, who's, who was just confirmed as Secretary of State. He said he basically agreed with the outgoing Trump administration that that China was conducting a genocide against the, the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities. That's a pretty important um, uh, marker. 
And of course, um, we've seen that the, 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 the Biden administration has been very strong on the um, basically the, the sort of crushing of, of civil and civil rights and rule of law in, in Hong Kong. So it's the beginning of something. I think that the Americans have a lot of things on their plate. But one thing that people have talked about over the last five years, four years in particular, is even though Trump was very anti CCP, anti China, he didn't build. He didn't work with allies to sort of create a, a, a common front. And, you know, at the same time, he was picking off allies, you know, imposing tariffs, steel tariffs on them and so on. So, and of course, the Trump administration also walked away from a major trade deal in the Asia-Pacific region that would have helped set the, the tone and, and the rules for trade in the region. So, um, the, the hope is that by the Biden administration begins to work with um, the key allies, whether it's the sort of five eyes, you know, UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, but also a broader uh, group of allies, including Asian allies like Japan and Korea, to sort of um, start to speak with one voice on these things. Uh, I guess one of the things that we've seen uh, the U.S. do under the Trump administration is impose sanctions on Chinese and Hong Kong officials for uh, the for the um, the uh, the abuses in Hong Kong. Uh, we haven't seen any other uh, uh, the sort of major U.S. allies do that. That would be one thing we're obviously looking for is whether we're going to see. Um, what are called Magnitsky-style sanctions against sort of top uh, Chinese officials. You may have uh, seen the Hong Kong chief executive, Carrie Lam, uh, before Christmas was complaining on TV that uh, because of the U.S. sanctions, she can't, she doesn't have access to banking services, so she has to be paid in piles of cash, and she has mm. to cart cash around. So it's, it's having an impact there. And the question will be whether or not um, other allies follow the U.S. in imposing those kind of sanctions. And of course, yes, we'll be looking to see what the Biden administration does in terms of continuing um, the uh, the pressure on China. Of course, central to that as well will be Taiwan, which many people believe is the next is the next area of concern. Now that the Chinese have basically, you know, erased um, uh, the sort of independent uh, civic rights and the mm-hmm. basic uh, in, in Hong Kong, there'll be the questions are turning to Taiwan. Stephen Chase has been with us, Ottawa Bureau reporter for The Globe and Mail, talking about everything from vaccines to our relationship with China. Fascinating conversation, Stephen. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here is today's daily commentary. We just heard of a Canadian company that will have a COVID-19 vaccine in arms by January of next year. Now, originally, they approached the federal government back in March to get this all going, and they were ignored. Then they were only two months behind Pfizer and Moderna with basically the same product. Finally, after being recognized by August, the company is now advancing its testing several months behind the others because there was no federal government support for the 100% Canadian vaccine produced here. Instead, Politico and the Financial Post have already reported the Prime Minister spent the early days of the pandemic working with a Chinese company, CanSino, for a vaccine out of China. Once the Chinese Communist Party got wind of the vaccine, was ready to leave for approval in Canada, they pulled back the shipments, somehow related to the Huawei CFO being released, it is alleged. The deal fell through and Canada started buying up everything it could, but not till August. By then, we were late to the game. 
That is the reason we are where we are. I'm Scott Thompson. Pfizer says each vial of its vaccine actually contains six doses, not five. The company has submitted a request to Health Canada to change the vaccine label to formally recognize this because the contract Pfizer has with Canada is based on delivering a specific number of doses rather than a set number of vials. Healthcare workers here have had some luck with drawing six doses out of a vial, but they say it hasn't been consistent. However, Pfizer says that is something that can be fixed with a specialized syringe. However, those syringes aren't easy to get as they are in short supply around the world. Sandy Salerno, Global News. It's like trying to scrape the last bit of peanut butter out of the jar. I think I got enough for one more cracker here, Ma. Let's go. Come on. Okay, now give that to the dog. He can lick the rest of that out. Uh, It's the business of vaccines. And why don't we make them? Considering if you drive along the 401, you can see drug companies everywhere. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, my pleasure. Uh, Ian, my, my first question is, why would the Prime Minister do a deal with CanSino, uh, considering our relationship with China? Uh, we know that as uh, approval was coming forth and this was to be shipped for approval to Health Canada, China stepped in and said, nope. Uh, why would you even go down this road? Um, I've thought about this uh, because I... Uh, uh I'm very aware of this story. We all are. And and I, I do think, I really do think, that he was unfortunately allowing politics to enter into it. And let me explain that. I'm not talking Liberal Party, Conservative Party. I, I think that his base, his supporters, are so anti-Trump. I mean, many of us are, let's be clear. Uh, but he did not want to be seen publicly to be doing a deal with the devil. I'm using colorful colloquial language to get my point across quickly. And he wanted to be able to say to the Canadian people, I have a deal and I'm not getting it from the Americans or from that Trump guy who could, you know, threaten to cut us off because it's coming from an American company, etc. And so I think he wanted, he thought, I think, that he had enough political capital with the Chinese government because he has been so circumspect in public and public comments about China, he hasn't been trashing China. He hasn't been condemning China. He hasn't been attacking China. And this goes all the way back to his father, who had a very close relationship with Mao Zedong and the leadership of China at the time. And I, I really believe that he thought that he had enough independence and political capital, um, uh, independence from the American regime and from political capital, that he could strike strike a deal that was going to be viable, and then he would be, have been a hero because he would have said, look, I've got tons of the vaccine. I got it before everybody else did. Look at what a great and clever guy I am. Of course, he wouldn't use that language that, that expressly. And I really do think that he was seeing this as his um, you know, claim to great leadership. You know, look, I, I, did, I skated circles around the Americans and the Europeans, and I did it with my relationship with China, and he thought maybe even in his more uh, fanciful moments, maybe he thought that that would also lead eventually to resolution of the two Canadians who have been seized uh, by, by the Chinese government. Um, wow. I think, and I'm being very blunt, I, I think that Mr. Trudeau is naive, and I don't mean that unkindly. I think that he overestimated his relationship with China, I mean, from the time of his father until now, 
and much more importantly, because I can understand overestimating ones, really, you know, you let your emotions, your family history get involved, and I mean, we're all prone to that. Where I think he was much more naive is not realizing that Xi, President Xi, is absolutely dedicated, and he has said so publicly multiple times, to the uh, ascension of China to be the number one country in the world. And nothing is going to step in his way and block his way. And that includes Justin Trudeau. I think, to be really blunt, I think that Justin Trudeau was just road roadkill, collateral damage on the uh, Chinese road. I don't think that they were picking on Canada. I don't think that they were targeting Canada. I don't think they were targeting Justin Trudeau. They are not going to let anything that's part of their continued march to greatness um, at the high end of the of development, whether there's drugs, airplanes, anything that's, quote, advanced technologies, broadly speaking, they're determined that they're going to keep them there and that they're going to use that as their tool to become the largest and most powerful country in the world. And I think that Mr. Trudeau overestimated his own impact uh, and influence with the Chinese and very, very substantially underestimated the absolute commitment of President Xi to the greater, call it the greater good, the greater glory of China. Is and that why we've seen... It's been a New Zealand government that negotiated it, or a German government. So I'm not trying to suggest that we got picked out for special treatment. We just were in the road, and we got run over by the Chinese government, by President Xi. He's not going to let that, that, any, of that, any of that vaccine or any drug that's developed in China uh, go over to Canada to be further developed, or Germany, or France, or Italy, or Sweden, or name your country, fill in the blank. And he did not, he, Mr. Trudeau, did not understand. Is that why we're seeing the the tone of the prime minister changed? It seemed again he he man, many said he was being way too soft on all of this, and then all of a sudden we really saw his tone change. Now whether that has something more to do with uh, uh, more information coming out about the Uyghurs or or such, but certainly we have seen his tone change of late. I think he's learning on the job. I, I say that very seriously. I think the lights did go on. I mean, I'm not never suggested Chester Trudeau is not intelligent. I've never suggested he isn't. Um, I think he is. Um, I think he has because he's come from the most extraordinarily privileged background, and my very limited experience with people that are really, really privileged. I don't mean middle class, upper middle class. I mean people you know that are really, 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 really successful. Is that they tend to very substantially overestimate their own strengths, talents, abilities, and so forth. And, and I, you know, you see this in, um, in very, very wealthy people as well. And uh, I had some experience. I won't go to the weeds. And when I took on four a billionaire and three millionaires 10 years ago in Ottawa in the Lansdowne Park redevelopment, and, uh, and I met them. And it just struck me. They were just oozing with unbelievable confidence. We know what we're doing. You're just an academic. You don't have, I lived in the Glebe where the Lansdowne Park is being developed. Mm-hmm. And they said, you don't know what you're talking about. You know? And it was just absolute dismissal. And, and, and Mr. Trudeau comes from that very extraordinarily privileged background where I think he dismisses people who are just from regular backgrounds. Yeah. And he, as a consequence, I believe, really underestimated the Chinese and their absolute commitment to where they're going, where they want to go. And he is now belatedly, in my view, realizing that G is the real deal, unfortunately. And I don't mean that in a flattering sense that Xi is committed to do whatever he has to do to get China there. If that includes so why did... Canada or New Zealand or Australia or anybody, he's going to do it.
So why did China then pull out of this? Why did China stop these shipments from coming to Canada and the steel from going uh, technology. through? technology. A, a vaccine is a technology. I mean, we think of technology as a box with a computer, yeah. but it's advanced knowledge. But they let that out to other countries. They let that out to other countries. And cutting-edge uh, uh, vaccines are advanced knowledge, and he understands that, that that's going to be a major growth driver in the world. Uh, going forward, but they did. But they did. Ian, they did release that information to some other countries. Um, we don't. There, it's not being. A, to my understanding, it's not being developed. Actually, developed. So I don't know how much they released. It, it, it didn't turn out to be uh, that good of a vaccine, anyway, from what we understand. I mean, we're talking about technology transfer, basically, and I don't. Yeah. I just don't believe that the Chinese are going to release any technology that they believe they're not going to do to others what. They did to the Americans. The Americans allowed until Trump came along, and I'm not saying this to defend Trump, because I think Trump, Biden's going to do the same thing going forward. So it has nothing to do with Trump the man. The Americans finally said enough is enough. We're not going to let advanced technology leak out and go uh, be transferred to China, where they're going to steal it uh, from American companies. And so that's when they start to clamp down on all kinds of things like chips and so forth. And uh, and China's been famous, uh, documented, endlessly documented how they steal Western technology. So they know they know the game, and they're not going to let it happen to them. They're not going to let an advanced yeah. technology go abroad where it can be grabbed by a Western company. And and so I think that that's why they're blocking it. I don't think that they will allow any advanced technology in any area, whether it's medicine, right. pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. airplane technology, rockets, um, artificial intelligence, five um, uh, G, whatever. I do not believe that they're going to allow it to be, uh, they're not going to partner in foreign countries where it's out of their control. All right, let's talk about uh, Providence uh, Therapeutics. We had their CEO on yesterday. He was saying that they approached yes. the government back in March, uh, early April, saying, you know, we're only a few weeks, six weeks, eight weeks behind Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, we just need more yeah. money in order to, to, to research this and do the testing. And they were basically yeah. told no. And and it appears that w- we weren't really lining up or buying doses or even interested in what these companies had to do uh, until late August. Why yeah. is that? I, I saw him interviewed last night on, I guess it was on either CBC or CTV, and uh, he said the very, basically very similar to what you know he said to you. Yeah. And um, I was struck, believe me, I was sort of gobsmacked saying, like, what is going on here? And uh, the only thing I can think of, and I think it's a reasonable, plausible um, theory I'm putting forward, uh, ex- explanation, is that it is a fairly small company uh, playing in a pond, a pool, uh, an ocean, <laughs> mm-hmm. where there are mega, gigantic pharmaceutical companies with billion, I mean, Pfizer is so enormous, people cannot imagine how enormous it is. These are companies the size of Boeing, you know, revenues of over $100 billion a year. They're giants. There's about 10 pharmaceutical giants in the world. Some are Swiss, some are German, some are American. And they're truly, truly enormous. And they've got an incredible clout, just like Bombardier got, you know, steamrolled by, by, uh, by Boeing and Airbus and finally forced to sell out uh, at uh, pennies on the dollar of the value of the R&D that had been done. And I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing that they, uh, they people, the decision makers, Round Trudeau, decided it was just too high risk because it's a very small company. Yeah, they got a very promising technology, but it's a brutal game. I'm talking pharmaceutical research, whether it's drugs or vaccines, let's, there's a distinction without a difference. And they just thought maybe the risk was too great 
Uh, but yet the risk in China. But yet the risk with China a, wasn't a pool or an ocean that's dominated by multi gazillion billion dollar giants. That they thought, no, no, we'll try and get it somewhere else. Are Canadians? Think of. Are Canadians? Uh, is Canada doing enough to create a good environment for these companies to come here and do research and development? There's all oh. kinds of people who will yell, "Big bad companies, big bad drug companies, they're ripping everybody off." Da 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 da. But yet, you know, when push comes to shove, we see where the research is going and who's actually producing the drugs that save our lives. Uh, will Canadians, will Canada now make it a little bit more palatable for business to do business here in Canada because of something like this? I'm very skeptical. And uh, I've been studying this file, believe me, going all the way back to Mulroney. That's a long time. And Mulroney came up with the, to get the patent act extended, the, the, the thing he threw to the critics on the left was he said, okay, we'll bring up with this price review board, which is basically this guy's price regulation of pharmaceuticals. And... Uh, that was 30 years ago, and I did media at the time. I was on CBC, I think, and I said, we're going to rue the day because this is an enormously risky industry. The FDA statistics, I think, is one drug out of 100 that start out, only one makes it finally to FDA approval. So in other words, 99 fail, so it has a 1% success rate. And the FDA figures, and this is FDA data, uh, is it's about $2 billion to bring one new drug to market successfully. And so it's very high risk. It's very capital intensive. The last thing that anybody with, who's got lots of money or a company that's got huge amounts of money to invest, the last thing on earth they want to talk about when you're in a very high risk, very high capital intensive environment is price controls. It's price regulation. It's the last thing on earth. And uh, because there's too many variables, there's too, many, too much risk, too much imponderables, too much you don't know about because it's such a high risk business. And I argued that when we brought in essentially price controls, we could disguise it and called it price, price review board, I think we called it. All we were doing was sending a great big giant message to pharmaceutical companies. Do not come to Canada. Do not invest here because if you go and spend all that money and come up with some great new drug, we're going to regulate your price at maybe half or two thirds or one third or whatever of what you want to get to recoup your incredible investment. So where do they go? They go to the nations that are most hospitable to mm. drug development, which is U.S., Germany, and Switzerland. It's not an accident. And the, the culture in Canada, because I'm not blaming it all on the NDP. There's lots of Canadians who agree. Those drug companies are bad, bad, bad. They charge big prices. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. And we just got to, you know, do something with them. And that hostility to them is going to ensure, has ensured that we don't have any serious drug uh, research and development in Canada. We have the knockoffs, the clone industry, the generic industry, Yeah. but we don't have the, the R&D industry. And, and, and this government has been talking about further, more restrictive regulations on drug prices. This is exactly going to not what drug companies want to hear, and they're mobile. They don't have to invest here. And governments don't produce that. Governments don't produce vaccines. It's private companies that produce vaccines. So he's pandering, and it's not just he. I mean, liberals, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. You know, when they come out and they demonize drug companies, and they they're bad, they're greedy, they're selfish. Drug prices are high, exploiting the poor. All this, these slogans, which is not serious evidence-based analysis. And all we're doing is sending a giant message. Loud and clear to the pharma. I'm not just talking Pfizer. I'm talking any pharmaceutical company. Don't come to Canada. 
And you know, very quickly, Scott, I just did a presentation on Zoom to retired professionals here in Ottawa the other day about sort of the outlook for the Canadian economy. And I, and I picked up on a graph from uh, David Dodge, the former Deputy Minister of Health, as well as Governor of the Bank of Canada. And he was showing how our productivity is, is just collapsed. We're at about two-tenths of one percent, and that's the only driver of long-term increase in the standard of living is productivity. That's straight out of Economics 101. But the other one that was even more frightening, he had a graph which I reproduced in my presentation from StatsCan showing that it was, this was wealth of Canadian investors, not foreign investors. And far more wealth, Canadian money, investor money, is being invested now outside of Canada rather than inside of Canada. In other words, people who know the country best, wealthy Canadians, are increasingly saying, I'm out of here. I don't want to invest here. I can invest better in other countries. I have better opportunities. And when your own elites, the World Bank and the developing world, they call this capital flight, Rich people try to get out of Russia because they don't trust the Russian government to expropriate. You know, they think they're going to lose their wealth. Same with China. China's experienced capital flight for a long time by rich people trying to get out and, uh, and, and take their money out, I mean, and uh, to transfer it, launder it, to get it out, to protect it. And when I saw that graph from Stats Canada showing that more money is being invested outside of Canada by Canadians than inside Canada, I thought, you know, this is a very bad signal or sign because the people who know the country best the investment laws the rules the regulations etc i'm not rich i'm not one of those people i'm just a professor but when the rich and the people that know the system and know how to make money and they're saying i don't want to invest in canada anymore this is a very bad sign and jack mintz has talked about this and it's not and don drummond has talked about this so it's not just one person how we're not getting a capital investment anymore because more and more people with money that invest in businesses and grow businesses and that create jobs and so forth have decided that the climate here is not positive enough. I don't want to say it's hmm. a hostile climate. We're certainly not China or Russia, but it's not conducive enough to take the risk of investing here. And that data is very clear. This is not an opinion. My opinion is interpreting the data, but there is no question, empirically, factually, that wealth of investors in Canada by Canadian investors is investing more outside of Canada than inside Canada. That's a fact. And then we can have opinions and theories about why they think it's better to invest out of Canada, but they are. And I think that's a very bad sign, not just for pharmaceuticals. It's a bad sign for high tech. It's a bad sign for any area that's a promising investment. Investors are saying, we're going somewhere else that's more attractive. So we do not have an attractive investment climate. Ian Lee has been with us, associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, talking about the businesses or the business of vaccines. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Okay, thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of chatter about long-term care, and we certainly know how this has uh, affected our senior population. So a, a group of doctors and, and professionals have gotten together and, uh, you know, are obviously lobbying government to, to make some changes. Uh, some of the nine objectives that this group talks about is uh, ending for-profit long-term care homes, hiring more qualified staff, 
the minimum pay standard for frontline uh, long-term care staff, uh, ensure 70% of the staff uh, are full-time, allow essential caregivers unrestricted entry into uh, long-term care uh, with the proper PPE, establish a partnership between hospitals, uh, keep hospital teams on standby, call upon the military if required, and accelerate uh, vaccination rollout into uh, long-term uh, care homes. We're going to try to focus on ending uh, for-profit long-term care homes and, and where that is in this discussion. Let's bring in Masha Lander, Senior Lecturer of Economics at Concordia University, and is with us now. Moshe, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure. Uh, first, let's uh, let's talk about the term long-term care and what would fall under that umbrella. I, I mean, it's it's all of those facilities that we're seeing right now on TV, right? It's, it's where the pandemic seems to be hitting the most. I think all of us are familiar with the idea of kind of like seniors' homes and residences and things like that, where you're, you're basically talking about people that are there on a more or less permanent sort of basis, right? They might have kind of in-and-out sort of privileges, but... Uh, I, I think that most of us can kind of imagine that that's as opposed to kind of a, a temporary sort of facility. So how many of these are public? How many of these are private? Um, you know what? I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I can tell you that, of course, it does differ on a province-to-province basis, right? And so partly that's going to be where the provinces put their health care allocations and their budgets into, um, you know, what they uh, want to devote to that um, particular portion of the, the population, and that's partly going to be driven by demographics, right? Clearly, provinces that have younger, more dynamic populations aren't going to have as much invested in those long-term facilities. Um, so uh, would long-term care pretty much include anything from, say, a, a nursing home right the way through to the, the most possible care you could find? A- absolutely. You know, as, as kind of a general sort of uh, blanket definition, yeah, that, that's pretty much hitting on it. So many are asking for the, to end for-profit long-term care homes. Is that the answer? Is, um, you know, I'm thinking about the, the, the difficult situation that the healthcare system is in anyway, uh, just trying to survive. Can we afford to put long-term care under that uh, umbrella? Is this the answer? So here's where I'm much more comfortable answering your question, and that is, no, that's not the answer. It seems like it's the answer. It seems like a good answer, but it's not. The the fact is that if you take these out of private hands, what you're effectively saying is that you want it run by the government. The problem with having it run by the government is that it has to be paid for then by the government, and that means that the government is going to have to collect money in taxes. And the fact is that I think most Canadians are already complaining that we're overtaxed. And so you're either going to have to take... Uh, existing tax dollars and divert it from other things, in which case you and I will be talking a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, about problems of shortages of funding in those particular areas, or they're going to have to increase the amount of taxes that we pay already. And if we're already complaining about what we're getting in terms of bang for our buck, uh, that's probably not the optimal solution. Uh, obviously, it was the very first uh, uh, suggestion on this list of nine. Many are making this sound like this is the only answer, that the problem is there's people trying to make money off of this, and that's why these people are neglected. Is that accurate? Yes and no. Okay, So um, the, the thing is that the province or any province or any government 
can dictate standards. And when you read off the list of nine things there, right, a lot of them were recommendations for if you want to run a long-term care facility, then these are the minimum standards you need to reach. So if you said that these are the standards that you need to reach, now you, private sector, go out and pursue profit, they don't gain anything by having their their clientele die on them. I mean, it's a bad PR hit. It's very difficult when you're trying to deal with, you know, what do we do with mom and dad, and maybe we should put them in a long-term care facility, and you go and you, you know, uh, three days since the last death, right? Like, it's it, it's not a good advertisement. So for profit institutions are, are not neglectful of their clientele. It's that they're merely responding to what are the incentives placed in front of them. And if the province isn't going to dictate clearly what they want achieved, then, yeah, the pursuit of profit is going to say, all right, how do we maximize profits while meeting these standards? You want better standards? Then put in policies that need to be met. Um, so obviously we need better policy here, more strict uh, rules as, a, as opposed to guidelines. Is this not something that should be done right the way across the country? I know uh, obviously uh, health is a provincial concern, but you know when it comes to standards of life and care, it seems this should be pretty consistent. Absolutely. So the, the bare minimum levels are, are something that could very easily be coordinated through the federal government, right? You're right. Health is a provincial matter. But the fact is that, you know, through our Canadian healthcare system, there is some level of federal um, intervention that could be done here to try and make sure that all provinces meet the same basic standard. Provinces can then go based on their own populations and decide, all right, do we want to go even beyond these standards or do we just want to meet the minimum level? It's kind of like the same thing when you're talking about education, right? Every uh, student in Canada has to learn kind of the same basic concepts in elementary school. It's just a matter of that each individual school board can decide, do we want to go further than that um, or do we just want to meet the minimum standards? And, And same sort of idea could apply here as well. So why can't we police this? I mean, you know, there's lots of private companies running lots of sensitive things. And, and you know, we have a process, procedure, protocol in place to make sure that, that everybody's doing it correctly and, and, and no one is suffering. Why can't we police this and focus on bad actors and move on? We can. We just haven't wanted to, right? It's almost like it's out of sight, out of mind. It's, it, it's not that... In the last 12 months, that uh, healthcare facilities have become negligent of the the seniors and and people in long-term care. It's just we've become aware of it, and so our outrage now is not at the conditions. It's that well, why didn't we know about it sooner? And so I, I think that again, that's that's an issue of bad supervision. That okay, there's maybe rules in place, and maybe people weren't taking them all that seriously until they start realizing that wait a second, this virus seems to be having a disproportionate effect if it gets into these long-term care facilities. And so now it's kind of a realization that, oh, wait a second, maybe we need to do a better job of box ticking uh, than what we've been doing in the past, or maybe we need to pay more attention and devote some resources to making sure that they're meeting some basic standards that we weren't all that careful about in the first place. How big is this problem? Because it's certainly being presented like the majority of the homes are on fire, that this is it is hell. Uh, Is it is that the case or is it again, you know, a couple of bad actors that, that just don't seem to be policed? I don't know that it's necessarily a couple of bad actors. I think that it's it's pretty widespread, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I think that what happens is that, say, once um, a COVID outbreak occurs in one of these facilities, it does seem to go disproportionately after the people within that facility, right? And so um, it's kind of maybe small events generating big sound. It's not to say that it's not a problem. It's not to say that we should ignore it. It's not to say that we're making too big a deal of it. It's just a matter of that when it does happen, it, it, it has devastating effect. And so it, it resonates a lot more. And so I think we maybe paint the brush that, yeah, this is across the board an issue when it's, look, there, there's a problem there, um, but it's maybe not quite as bad as the six o'clock news makes it sound. Um, uh, if the government was to take over uh, all of these homes, eliminate the private sector from this, how do we do that? How how do we pay for that? Um, good question. <laughs> it's, the, the, because it seems as if, because the way it's thrown around, uh, it, it seems as if, you know, boom, we could do this like this. This is not a big problem. Well, I think it's not a big problem to say that the government should take it over. It's once the government goes to take it over that it becomes the problem, right? And that's exactly yeah. it. The, the government has to pay for this. And right now, we're looking at government deficits for probably a generation ahead of us, um, which means that based on current projections, they're outspending the amount of money they're collecting in revenue. And so if that's what's going on with a private LTC system, what's going to happen if the government takes that over? And of course, remember that if the government takes it over and they decide to implement any sort of cut, can you imagine the type of media that that would generate, that the government is killing grandma uh, by cutting back on this particular uh, aspect of of the LTC system? It, It would be unthinkable. And so you know, governments would have extremely difficult decisions and it would become a highly politicized issue that uh, I, I think that just in the heat of the moment when we're watching what's happening, it sounds right that, well, let the government fix this uh, until we realize that, yeah, the, the government's going to have to come up with tax revenue from some source, whether that's on income, sales taxes, tourist taxes, um, or whatever it might be. Uh, and those are the difficult choices that I don't think we're prepared to make, certainly not right now when all of us are worried about survival uh, rather than, uh, you know, taking kind of a sober look at this. Is this becoming, um, you know, I mean, we got a, a group of prominent doctors here. Is this becoming more political rather than what's good, uh, efficient care? Um, because, again, these doctors must know if you throw this all under the public umbrella, my goodness, it's <laughs> how do you again, is it going to get better or is it going to get worse? It is becoming politicized, and and I think kind of that's probably a general rule across a lot of what we're seeing in yeah. society, that, you know, these sorts of uh, discussions are, are becoming highly politicized. And even if it's not a left versus right thing, it, it's, you know, a, a small business versus government type thing, or it's uh, unionized doctors versus people working outside of the, the unionized healthcare system, you know, so... Uh, passions run high and social media is a great way to whip up sentiment for whatever position you want to take. And, uh, you know, that, that's exactly where the situation is heading then, that this easily becomes an election issue, say, uh, if we do have one in this year, where you can imagine that the parties on the left are going to want to take a particular position about nationalizing all forms of health care and parties on the right are going to say, um, no, that's one step too far because it means big taxes, big government, and uh, government uh, involvement in sectors where they don't necessarily understand what they're involved in. 
We had the same sort of discussion uh, just a few uh, segments ago in regard to vaccine. Governments don't produce vaccines. They just make it uh, palatable for uh, business to come in and, and make vaccines. And, and it's the sort of, same sort of thing here. Uh, obviously, this is a very, this problem has been around forever. It's been around for decades. It just didn't happen. Uh, obviously, COVID-19 has exposed this vulnerability as it has with many, uh, you know, weak links in, in various chains. Uh, this is a very difficult quick fix, is it not? Is it's a long, we need a long term solution here. Oh, for sure. It, it, this is not going to be fixed in the next six months. There, there's no amount of legislation that could do it. Even if you could somehow come up with that legislation, the implementation, the monitoring, the amount of time that these uh, facilities would need to be able to either convert to public ownership or to meet the recommendations that you listed at the beginning of this segment, you're talking about something that's going to take years. And of course, what always complicates these things is that what is going to take years is probably longer than the term of any particular government. And Mm -hmm. so while you start going down the path of trying to implement all of these reforms, a new government comes in and says, you know what, change our mind, this is the wrong policy, we're going to go this way. And these poor facilities then, in particular, the residents of these facilities are the ones who suffer because they can't get some consistent level of uh, care that they deserve uh, because the policies are constantly changing. And again, it's one of the reasons why you would almost expect that the private sector should be able to do a better job with the proper guidance, with the proper regulation, with the proper supervision. Um, you know, we look at the, the, the list of suggestions, which I read you and man, most of them are, are, are common sense and, and a lot that we're working towards, uh, already. But then as soon as, you know, you put at the top of that list, we got to get rid of the privatized, uh, long-term care homes and, and just, uh, make the whole system public. Does that discredit the discussion because again that seems to be a far far extreme you know there's lots of things we can do but that seems more political than it does efficient so um when you when you say things like well we got to just government's got to take over the whole thing uh as if it was a pipeline or an airline or a, a petrochemical company um when when we have when when that sort of extremism is brought into the discussion uh d- does it fall on deaf ears it can, especially if it's done uh, repeatedly, right? At some point, you know, diminishing returns kick in and you eventually just kind of tune it out. But it, it could also be merely just a, a bargaining chip that while there's nine recommendations there, this one, of course, being the headline and this one being the most controversial, maybe what you do is you drop that one in exchange for meeting the other eight, right? And so hmm. this becomes then a way that you can get things that you would otherwise maybe not be able to get by putting out that crazy recommendation there, hmm. uh, it's just not acceptable, right? Or um, maybe this becomes something that uh, can actually just stimulate debate where, all right, we're not really going to do it, but it's a trial balloon just to kind of see where public sentiment is. And, sure. you know, in the coming weeks, when people come out and say, okay, you want to turn this into a public system, that's going to cost you X billion dollars, which means that uh, you're going to have to go without your daily latte at Starbucks. Um, you're interested in that. All of a sudden, then you can say, all right, this was merely a recommendation just to kind of see where people are, rather than we really expect that this is going to be implemented. Where do you see this going in, you know, post-COVID-19 in the next year or two? Uh, do, you, do you see this still being top of mind? No, um, it's, it's top of mind right now, because like I said earlier, you know, the same way that it was out of sight, out of mind, 
this is in sight and front of mind. I, I think that because we're just watching um, in sorrow and in horror when we see that the leading news story is a COVID outbreak in a particular facility kills a whole bunch of people. And you see all of those pictures of senior citizens that are basically being left and a healthcare staff that's saying, what can we do? Um, that's why it's front of our, our mind right now. But, you know, once you see that these new strains come along and we have new lockdowns or new restrictions or even once a vaccine comes along and all of us can resume our day-to-day life, I think it's going to go back to exactly where we before where we weren't really thinking about these long-term facilities, not because that's the right thing to do, but just that's the way that we were living our lives. And I think that once these outbreaks stop happening there, I think we just kind of go back to business as usual. It's sad to say, but I, I kind of think that's what we do. So you don't think the attitudes will change? Because many thought, many have thought, you know, we've been in this so long, we can't come out the other end the same. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think every time that we're faced with any sort of crisis, we always say that in the moment, right? Mm. The world will never be the same, right? It's, it's <laughs> yeah. September 12, 2001. The world will never be the same. Yeah, it's a little more difficult to travel, but you know what? The world went on. After the financial crisis, the world will never be the same, and the world goes on. I, right now, when we're in the middle of a COVID crisis, we're saying the world will never be the same. The world has changed forever. And in five years from now, we're going to say, hey, you remember that COVID outbreak? And you remember how scary it was for that 18 months or two years? Um, but it, it's a pothole in the road of life. And in the moment, uh, you worry for the, the well-being of your car and everybody in it. And after a while, it's just a bump in the road that you continue on. Moshe Landers been with his senior lecturer of economics at Concordia University, talking about long-term care and the business of private versus uh, public. Moshe, thanks so much for the time and insight. Fascinating discussion. Be well. Anytime. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we all know what we have been missing. We all know uh, what it's been like to uh, stay in for the last I don't know how many months it is. Uh, and, you know, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, man. Wouldn't it be great to see a show, see a concert, uh, go out with a whole pile of people and just scream and sweat and, you know, what you'd normally do when you're packed into a building watching a live act. Uh, and, and imagine how the performers are feeling, uh, not being able to do that. And of course, not to mention, uh, the hit they're taking financially, not being able to tour. Uh, well, the Flaming Lips have held a concert, uh, which, uh, man, you gotta see the footage of this just to believe it. Uh, the, obviously this band known for being, uh, experimental to say the least held the first of two socially distanced concerts, uh, with the audience members encased in individual plastic bubbles. Uh, this all happened, Oklahoma City, uh, January 22nd. And to talk more about all of this from the Flaming Lips, Wayne Coyne is with us. Uh, Wayne, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, all right. <laughs> you're, uh, I was just listening to your, uh, I mean, the audience doesn't realize this. I, I was on hold listening to your show and your intro there. And I, w- I forgot for a minute that, I was going to talk to you. I was just listening. What a great introduction. Thank you. Thank you. That and must that be like when you're up there. That must be like when you're up there on stage playing and going, man, this is great. And, oh, Jesus, an audience here. And I got a show to do. Well, there is. I mean, there's always an element of that anyway. You know, I try to, you know, be a professional and say, well, this is my job. I'm up here to, to sing and entertain people and all that stuff. 
but it is even on a normal level it's it's a, an amazing job to have you know I, I i can imagine what that i i can only imagine what that's like and anyone who listens to music uh, uh obviously at one time or another has envisioned themselves doing exactly what you guys do up there uh this is an incredible idea tell us how well, first of all uh speaking about being up on stage and looking at the audience <laughs> that must have been just bizarre <laughs> but tell everybody uh what what happened here and how this all came about well, the space bubble, you know, idea, you know, I've been uh, using a space bubble, a singular one, you know, just myself being in it as part of our stage show since 2004. So almost every night that we've played a concert since then, you know, a long time now, you know, um, I would go out sing a song and the audience would sort of carry me around and then yeah. I'd get inserted back on the stage. So I'm quite used to it, you know, and, and so <laughs> when all of this started, um, there would be not jokes, but I think like absurd commentaries about, well, you know, Wayne from the Flaming Lips is like the only person that was prepared for this pandemic. And of course, you saw the, this coming, man. Well, I, if I, I, no, uh, not, not in that sense. Um, not any more than, than any of the scientists. <laughs> I, I don't want to make light of it, you know. Um, so, you know, in a weird way, we were kind of used to this stuff, you know. Um, yeah. And I made a little cartoon sort of commentary that I put on my Instagram where in 2019 a Flaming Lips concert uh, I would be the only one in a space bubble and the band and the audience of course would just be normal you know and Flaming Lips concert in 2020 I'm in a space bubble but then so is the whole band and so is the whole audience and this was done really just the first day of the lockdown back in back in March, I think probably March twelfth or eleventh it was here in in oklahoma where i'm where I'm talking to you from um, with no really belief that it would last longer than maybe two weeks, maybe a month, maybe a yeah. month or two at the most when we were talking about this in March, we had dates where we were going to be playing shows around the world in june and july and we felt absolutely sure those were going to happen but of course none of those you know we know now none of those happened um and so as it went the producers of the stephen colbert show that's in america i'm not sure if you guys get oh yeah show, yep, yep. big big tonight show in, in in america they approached me about doing what and we didn't know what they were then but we said you know it's gonna be this thing where you tape it from like your own home or wherever mm -hmm. you you guys are doing your your stuff at and they hinted that they saw this little cartoon that i did and said could we try to do a show like this where you guys are all maybe in these space bubbles and i said yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> so so that's Why one not? thing. That's one thing putting you or the band and, and you know how you're playing an instrument in a bubble is beyond me. But anyway, uh, getting you and the yeah. band in a bubble or in your own individual bubbles, that's one thing. But how do you get an audience into a bubble? Uh, what's that process? How big are these? How many in each bubble? What, give us the logistics right. of the bubble from a, from a spectator yeah. point of view. You know, luckily, because I could see where if you had to think of all these things in, in the rush of just a, in a couple of moments, it, it sounds absolutely overwhelming, and it would be. But luckily, we've had since last March to kind of step by step think about it. So the space bubbles are about seven feet, you know, and that's a ball in there. So it's seven feet around. Um, and we've done tests where one person is in there, two people are in there, three people in there, and there's plenty of breathable air in there for probably three or four hours, you know, without <laughs> ever putting any more air in. There's a lot of air in there. People don't realize how much, you know, that you can stuff air into there. So it's a lot of air that's in there. Um, but, you you know, we when we put people in there, we, we know we're going to refresh this air 20, 25 minutes in. We're, we go around, we check everybody and just see if it feels stuffy in there or if it's getting hot or whatever. And we just, we sort of refresh it. So we sort of. Blow some is, is there more time? Is it? Is there more time keeping the people refreshed in the bubbles and concentrating on the show? No, because yeah, all of I a mean, sudden it seems know, now that it seems now that the audience has become the concern, not what's going on on stage. Well, you know, in a way, I think all concerts are like that, even before the pandemic. You know, Good point. there has always been a lot of concern for the audience being safe and all that anyway, you know, so I don't want to make it seem like that's a new thing. But I felt like when we started to consider these shows, that if it's not going to be safe, there's just no point in, in doing all this stuff. Everybody could just stay home and be have more fun, you know. So yeah, we went to a lot of effort to make sure you, you when when the audience shows up, you know, they are they're in lines outside they have masks on and at least at our concerts it is very restricted you cannot be there without a mask on mm -hmm. anywhere in the vicinity you know if, if you come in there and you take your mask off before you're inside the space bubble you know you're 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 kicked out it's like this, yeah. this is a very serious thing you know um but luckily the, the people that want to come to these concerts that's what they're coming for you know yeah. they like this idea that you know we're we're safe in these bubbles and like you said in your introduction uh, the idea that you go and you can go crazy and you can drink and you can be sweaty with your friends as long as your friends are inside the bubble with you all that is absolutely true you know the minute you get out you got to put your mask back on and get out of this building you know it's but i have found that once all that is taken care of. People like the idea of kind of being in the space bubble. And I think if we put on, you know, a massively entertaining show, I think they can get lost in it in, in the same way. Um, so I think all that kind of 
surprisingly wasn't like a bummer for everybody. Everybody kind of embraced it like, this is what we have to do, let's do it. It is it is wild looking at the picture of this. Uh, so again, getting back to you, uh, what's it like staring out at an audience and they're all in their own or groups of bubbles? How many how many bubbles did you need here? Well, so this venue that's allowed us to do this in. So we've been in this venue now, really almost since March. You know, there's not very right. many things that are going on in these venues, so it's you know it's. it's kind of just all hours you know um there's a hundred of them and they take up the whole floor i mean it's a it's a big <laughs> it actually venue. looks like it, it looks like a giant box of eggs almost <laughs> well yeah which is beautiful yeah <laughs> it is. Um, and so i think in the beginning what you know the first couple of times we did this they were shorter like you know performances and video performance shoots and i would be watching as much as i could each bubble to make sure everybody was okay but but the more we've done it the more i've gotten used to like that they they are okay and they're having fun and we're all in this together and and it's kind of just a concert you just happen to be in a space bubble you know is this the future wayne i mean can you see this being the norm well, you know, not the norm. I mean, I, I think for the next six months or so, I think we'll probably be able to do more of these shows in this location because it'd be difficult to, it's still difficult to travel around. It's, yeah. You know, it's hazardous to do any, any, there's still a lot of restrictions, you know. So as long as we're staying in this one place, I mean, people forget you know we are we're susceptible to covid too right? everybody in the band and all mm-hmm. the people that are helping us put it on you know um so we want to be careful just for our own families and health reasons you know um i don't know i mean let's say if god forbid you know the the coronavirus has another version of itself and we have to be in this for another year or two years I would say there would probably be lots of other people that would want to attempt this um, just because, uh, you know, you've got to do something, you know. But at the moment, I don't see any other groups or any other venues um, that seem to be too interested. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a lot of stuff to do. And I think the Flaming Lips... And this venue that we're doing at, we're sort of uniquely qualified to to get to to get through some of the real dilemmas of it. Only because we we've, we've sort of been messing with these these plastic space bubbles for you know you know fifteen years now. You know, the Flaming Lips have done their research and development when it comes to life in the plastic bubble. Uh, Wayne Coyne has been with his lead singer for the Flaming Lips. You got to see this online. It's, it's incredible. But, uh, an Oklahoma show where, uh, everyone is in their own little plastic bubble or certainly you and your small group of friends or friend. Uh, it's hilarious to see. Wayne, uh, good for you for, for trying to figure out how to get this done <laughs> and, uh, at least moving forward and giving us something to talk about other than the negative parts of this, uh, COVID-19. Uh, can't wait to see all of these great bands, uh, on stage again. Wayne, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with all of this.
Yeah, well, it was wonderful to talk to you. You sound like you got a great, great show there. Thank you for letting me be a, a little part of it. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. You're more than welcome. Take care. Wayne Coyne, lead singer of The Flaming Lips, uh, incredible show in Oklahoma where uh, all in attendance were in their own little plastic bubble. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. All right, beauty dude, thanking you.